the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3 this Tuesday. It is a delight to do so. Happy New Year to you both. First time I've seen you since the second day of the new year. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman are my guests. Hugh Hallman is the former mayor of Tempe. He is an attorney. He is an educator. He is many things in town. Lewis Hallman is also many things in town, but his chief job is as managing managing director at uh, Insight Analytics, LLC. And it's good to see you both. Happy New Year. Always a delight, Seth. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And uh, Hugh came in with his um, with his medals, his running medals, and uh, it was good to see. Uh, one has to show one's bling off whenever one can. That's and, why they have them. I mean, they're there to show. It, it was a goofy thing to do. So for the New Year uh, effort this year, my bride and I signed up and did the a 5K at 1030 at night, the last race of the year. And then a 5K at 1210 in in the morning, uh, the first race of the year. And they awarded two medals for those who finished. Yes, indeed, we're uh, in that era where it's not just medals for the first, second, and third place winners. Everybody gets a participation medal because that makes us all feel good. So I brought those in to show them off and encourage Seth, who had originally agreed to do the runs with us. Uh, and then backed out at the last minute. Came to uh, his senses. Came to his senses is another the way, better of way to put it. it. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Let's not well, go running it at midnight, maybe. <laughs> well, you know, if you if, given it's New Year's Eve, you can have a little anesthetic to help you through the first run and then have a little in-between and to help you through the second run. In any event, it's good to see you both. And there's a lot going on for the new year. Lewis, Happy New Year. Uh, what do we want to talk about? Well, it is a new current year, and yep. so that does uh, you know, raise the question to me of what sort of new social policies are thus mandated by the fact that the current year has, of course, advanced. I'm sure the left was, is baitlessly uh, 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 waiting to uh, drop all sorts of fascinating and arcane policy, given that it's actually now also an election year yeah. as well as the current year. Yeah. I can give you one example. So the Corporate Transparency Act took effect. Uh, its regulations took effect on uh, the 1st. And that requires uh, most businesses in the United States to uh, file uh, documents with the federal government revealing their owners and indirect owners, their beneficial owners, uh, so that the uh, feds can have a clearer view of everyone's everything. Uh, Now, arguably, it is to help the U.S. federal government uh, staunch money laundering from around the world, but uh, those of us who have some reason to be suspicious of any actions taken by the federal government can raise a concern about that. Before we get into any such deeper issues, I have to pick a fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adult supervision walks in the room here. That's me. That's me. And I was uh, listening to the podcast, as I encourage everyone to do. If you don't listen live, then you got to go back and listen to stuff or you're missing really great thinking about our current situations and conundra. And in this case, mistaken thinking. In in my view, mistaken thinking. And the big question among you and Bill and young David was, would you you prefer to live in a red town in a blue state or a blue town in a red state? And we all had the same answer. And you all said 
as did Lewis, I proposed this to him this afternoon, you all said you'd rather live in a red town in a blue state, and you were all absolutely wrong. Come on, wow. absolutely Come on in. Come on in. wrong. Come on in. Here's why: yeah. because most of the issues that we care about are controlled by the state organizational structures that we have. And yes, it is true that a city can dither around the edges on certain issues and create all kinds of goofy social standings and, and things within its confines. But when push comes to shove, you want to be under a red state which can then take care of business and sort out the goofiness that blue cities impose. Examples are here in the state of Arizona. Many cities have tried to enact goofy things, and then the state legislature enacts something that says, no, you can't do that, and moves the authority out of that city's hands back to the state where I'd rather have those controlling interests. In addition, most of the economic interests that we care about are controlled entirely by the state level as well. And so I think if you like to have go to fun parties, as my older brother used to say, um, he agrees with Republicans uh, uh, almost entirely, but uh, prefers to party with Democrats. Um, that if you want the fun social environment, then you should hang out with Democrats. That's sort of your city environment. You can get parties and other kinds of goofy stuff. But when it comes to the real meaningful stuff, you got to be in a red state. Okay, Bill, go ahead and con- contradict my, my well, view. I'm thinking quality of life. I'm thinking homeless. I'm thinking crime. I'm thinking enforcement of most laws, which ca- happen at the local level, not through this, at least here, not with the state attorney general, Lewis. I have one question before we, before we get way too deep into the weeds on this. When we're comparing our respective blue and red towns that we have the option to, are we thinking about the fact that blue towns are overwhelmingly larger in scale and thus would tend to dominate all municipalities of, say, over one million people, whereas your red city would be typically likely smaller and more uh, uh, suburban or uh, exurban, potentially? Or are we thinking this is an all-else-equal, no, I only care about I certainly like the, like prefer the, the caterers paribus, but the point would be— uh, if you have a small town in a blue state, you're even worse off because that state will eventually corrode all of your rights because the state authority has that ability to do so. In contrast, if you've got a blue city, it is much more likely to be nibbled away at the edges by the redness. And here's the best examples I can or best example I can give you. Nashville, Tennessee, a blue city in a very red state responsible for uh, electoral votes and other things in the direction we prefer. He would be my, my counterpoint. Austin. And, and, Austin is the – go ahead. Yeah, Austin's another example. Well, Blue city in a red state. I, I, I would note, frankly, that, that what you're espousing is a, is a profoundly uh, interesting totalitarian little impulse there because what you're saying in effect is you don't really care what the cultural makeup and, and texture and contour of your local community is so long as you have access to a political environment in which your morality and beliefs will go unch- unchallenged at the level of greatest power, which is fine. Clearly, you don't you don't necessarily care about the well-being or the interesting conversations you have with your neighbors, so long as your moral purity is intact. I respect it. I love it. No, no, that's good. But uh, uh, I think you may be missing something. Like I, most people are not political a hundred percent of the time, and indeed, I would argue they take much more of a proportion of meaning out of their lives based on the social and cultural ties that surround them. And so it's it's interesting to me that that. That you, you would take so much meaning from partying with blues as long as your your red morals would be would be unharmed. But okay, fair, Dad. Uh, I was using your uh, your uncle's view of that 
part of the universe. The point is... And you're undermining your no, own tenure. No, I am not. What my point would be is I tried to move, keep things redder in Tempe right. all against, yes. the, against the trend. Yes. I would know but, all of us living in Phoenix probably do count as living in sort of a blue city in a red state as well. That, that is correct. The urban but, character. But Tempe and Phoenix are that way, as is Tucson, as is Flagstaff. What are the commonalities? Universities. Um, that said, you still have, uh, if you're calling me a totalitarian, I believe our federal system is set up to allow us to look to the higher level of government to assure that the structure is maintained in a way that preserves our individual interests and rights against the tyranny of a crazy blue majority there. Bill, anything? <laughs> a rump. No, um... I like that a, you have a – if you have a red state, red governor, uh, he just needs to sometimes get in there and do something. Um, Doug Ducey, he kind of threw his hands up about COVID saying, oh, I'll leave it to you cities when it would have been nice for him to do something like DeSantis did with, nope, not going to have mask mandates here, not going to have whatever Yes, mandates. but the blue state, California, with a prior – previously red city, San Diego – had the governor dictating those kinds of things. The fact that Doug Ducey didn't step into the void when he could have is one of my complaints about uh, the uh, the Ducey Meister, um, the the Doug Meister. Which what's the what's the pejorative we want to use here? Uh, so you're not going to get an argument from me because I wrote I wrote the letter to the legislature and the governor early on saying this is the roadmap. Other people took that advice. Our governor did not. Our legislature has more consistently stepped in when cities have gotten out of line, much to their chagrin, and then they cry and whine to the League of Cities and Towns. Now, I will say, I do believe the legislature was wrong in stepping in and eliminating uh, rental sales tax from cities, which is one of their only sources of uh, consistent income, especially those cities that need that revenue when they have a lot of tenants as opposed to owners. They have all kinds of free rider problems that they need the money for to uh, resolve the problem. Not that I'm a high tax guy, but the fact is you can move if you don't like a city that has a sales tax. I think there, there might be a more interesting wrinkle on this. Uh, and, and, and rather than asking, would you rather live in a, a red state or a blue state, red city, blue city, I, I wonder, would you rather live in a city with very, very powerful government or very, very weak government? I prefer Same to live in, in jurisdictions that have, by definition, weaker governments than more powerful ones. I do as well. I'll take the weak. We've seen what strong can do. <laughs> okay, good work. We'll be right Well, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lou Holman and Hugh Holman are my guests. We have a lot on our menu we wanted to get to. That was just, that was fun, though. Uh, and kind of kind kind of a um, a classic question that Lincoln struggled with himself uh, when he, in his message to Congress, asked if we are all fated to suffer the eternal question of what, whether a government of necessity must be too strong for the liberties of its own people or too weak to maintain its own existence, right? That's the question. Exactly right. The and Lincoln was asking. We've discussed on that topic. In fact, it was uh, uh, William F. Buckley who raised this issue as well. And in, in I think, in Firelong, there was a conversation about this balance between too strong and too weak, right. and that we are always in these United States going from those two poles, trying to maintain the balance, and sometimes we get over strong and sometimes we're over weak, and we end up trying to maintain that balance. And the challenge, I think, for current purposes, and you raise this in your monologue, is have we walked away from the principles that are essential to maintaining that balance? 
that we have something here in this country that your monologue argues, and if you, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't hear it in the first hour, you need to, uh, brilliant thinking about how we have, uh, we are watching our society disintegrate potentially because we are no longer standing up for certain principles that are essential to keep us in that lane, in the lane between the bumpers that are set in our constitution between too weak and too strong. The interesting segue to all this might be the immigration discussion that we were talking about the other day. Do you want to do you want to shift to that? Because that's actually a kind of a federal state thing, too, going on. Certainly. But I, I, before we depart from your monologue, I want to note that I think you got it wrong in that, too. Okay. Only in this sense. Your monologue talks about the fact that at, at your final conclusion is that we have refused to understand the ideological forces and appetites of those we said uh, were not our business. Right. Ultimately, we saw that before World War II right. with uh, Hubert uh, <laughs> Hubert Hoover, uh, with Herbert Hoover, Herbert right. Hoover right. Uh, Hubert Humphrey, Humphrey and Herbert Hoover, with Her- Herbert Hoover remaining an isolationist until the bombs dropped. And that is your point of this monologue, that we understood things before December 7th, that we failed to act on and had to act very differently on December 8th. We failed to understand those things on September 11th, 2001, that we then had to deal with on September 12th very differently than had we behaved uh, somewhat differently beforehand. And I would merely point this out. It is, as you write, quote, part of this is born of arrogance, the likes of which are melded in uh, blithely thinking that the rest of the world is like us and shares our general values. Part of the answer is arrogance, thinking little about the goings-on elsewhere. Part of it is the symbiotic luxury welded together. Uh, the notion, represented by 20 to 51 percent of the millennials taught by the New York Times and adopted, that we should have it coming to us, and that it was the end of Marxism that was the problem, unquote. And all I would say is I disagree in this subtle point, that in fact our Constitution understood it intuitively and we have lived under that protection and it is that the human condition is filled with people who are seeking to take power and authority over others and our constitution unique among all the world created the bumpers that said here are the lanes you will be in by understanding that and using those base base desires by every human being As the means by which we would sustain this balance, the Constitution pits interests against interest. And that's what does not exist in the international universe, except by the power of different nations to hold that. And this is why I'm so distressed with Republicans now about Ukraine. It is because, as Lewis describes, the Bretton Woods Treaty that gave us a structure for the international environment that was policed by the United States. Yes, do we want to be the world's policeman? I get the problem. Donald Trump was right that everybody else should have to pay for the price of the policing and hasn't since World War II. But without that structure that is governed now in a universe where we had a philosopher king, the United States, without that philosopher king, we now have totalitarians using their strength and power to destroy this very nation. I don't think we disagree, actually, but but, uh, I think the tension—I'll let you weigh in, Lewis. I think the tension I was trying to expose here is that we have too many people who undermine the part of the Constitution 
that not only esteems uh, freedom and liberty beyond just its conveniences, but guarantees a Republican form of government, not because it's preferential, but because it is the best form of government. If the world is in need of a policeman, and boy, it sure is, better policemen be from a country that believe in a Republican form of government than in Stalinism. That's all I was saying. Agree. Okay. I, I think that Kiyosaki got two broad things spectacularly incorrect. Better tell people who you're talking about. Robert Kiyosaki uh, is the thinker that Seth was alluding to in his monologue uh, who penned No, the, no, 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 no. Francis Fukuyama. Oh, excuse me. You're, you're, wow. <laughs> you had me. Wow. Robert Kiyosaki wow. is Kiyosaki a friend again. Yeah, yes. Kiyosaki no. is the rich guy, rich, rich dad, poor guy. Wow, <laughs> right, 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 wow, right, right, wow, right, 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 right. All right, that's okay. We're not oh, going to start over. I got Keep dropped. going. Wow, yep. Yeah. Okay. It's called a mental fart. Yes, it was. Wow. Okay. Fukuyama. (laughs) Excuse me. I need to apologize to both Francis Fukuyama and Robert Kiyosaki. It's all right. It's all right. Um, uh, I was just clarifying for the audience because my audience knows uh, both of them. I'm sure. Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So, so Fukuyama broadly had had two um, two critical errors, I think, in his thinking. The first is the notion that uh, one should never fight the last war. You know, his his idea that with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, the then historical fall of fascism, there is no longer an ideological force left to challenge the West. He figured that, that China would uh, uh, open its economies and go full markets, I believe, by the year 2015, per his essay. Uh, we see how wrong he was. Um, so he didn't think that the older forces of uh, anti-Westernism and illiberalism, I think more closely related to fascism than communism for reasons of incentive in that the elite in a fascistic condition can plunder while the elite in a communistic society cannot. Um, the other problem that, that Kiyosaki had was the, the, excuse me, Fukuyama. Wow, this is really hurting me. The other <laughs> issue that, that Fukuyama had was uh, uh, the notion of history as a progressing line up, one that trends upwards, um, and that doesn't doesn't revert, really. Uh, th- this is really a common progressive stance since the Enlightenment, and it is one, I think, that is uh, uh, overfit drastically to the last hundred years of history. Uh, we, we don't need to go back much farther than that to see huge examples of of reversals of fortune all throughout history. The Black Death could be a classical example. Uh, World War II itself could be a classical example in the very short run. Um, World War I as World well. World War I, you see the Bronze Age collapse. You see the fall of the Roman Empire in the Dark Ages. Uh, there are innumerable uh, civilizational collapses across the Chinese space. History is not a one-way thing. Right. It is dynamic. And it tends to rhyme. Uh, right. And and this is begging for us to raise the immigration part of this. I Correct. Think, and now we'll it deliver. is. Yeah. Okay. We'll come right back on that point. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman, my guests. Putting all that together, uh, the culture of a country, uh, the culture of an ideology, the success of an ideology, um, when there is a clash of them. And now it does kind of bring us into this interesting discussion of illegal immigration in this country and something that has been exposed. How did you want to put it, Hugh? Something that has been exposed by the um, re, re, retractions uh, and remonstrations of these sanctuary cities that were so happy to be sanctuary cities in the abstract until a few hundred illegal immigration 
buses and airplanes overwhelmed them to the point of uh, of 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 uh, reconsidering uh, at least their their open immigration policies when it came to it's fine for Texas and Arizona to suffer it, but not for us. Um, that it also goes to a lot of the motive behind uh, this flux of illegal immigration that we have seen, which is unprecedented in number. Um, and it goes to motive as to why leadership of a country would allow this to happen also. But you were struck by some of what Mayor Adams has been saying out of New York City. You were struck by the reaction of Martha's Vineyard. You were struck by the reaction of the new mayor of Chicago. Well, the the – Irony is not lost on most of us in Arizona who have been, uh, you know, I was I was during a campaign many years ago, uh, had fingers pointed at me that I'm a rhino and an open borders Republican. That is not true. Uh, I believe in a very orderly immigration system that we had good chance at putting together during President Reagan's tenure and never got done. Uh, then we had good shot at it during George W. Bush's tenure and it never got done. And we are still left with a screwed up uh, legal immigration system that makes it more difficult for people we want to come here to get here. And as a result, we have the ill between the uh, uh, groups that like having illegal labor here because it's cheaper and those who want to foster it because it's great for their political grounds. And the the worst of the last form are, for example, uh, Mayor Adams. This is his quote from October. Quote, we are neighbors. We are familia. Mi casa es su casa. Your struggles are my struggles, Adams said inside the legislative chamber shortly after his state of the gov- uh, state governor, George S- Sergio. Um, uh, I've forgotten it. I can't even read it. My dubbed him mayor of Puebla. Of course, after that statement made. Uh, He now faces the fact that Joe Biden's failed immigration policy, which was eliminating all of the uh, limitations put in place by President Trump to try to start dealing with the illegal side of things while we worked out a legal immigration system that made sense. He's undone all of that. Uh, Title 42 repeal. He got rid of the border wall. He eliminated uh, any kind of restrictions on coming across the border. And in fact, I'm you, you see Stop piled the in front of me. Border wall, the amnesty country. You've got board. all of their words right. saying just the opposite, announcing new border enforcement actions. This is January 5th of 2023. Fact sheet: Biden Harris administration. Fact sheet: January uh, five announces new border enforcement. All of this kind of stuff. Uh, remarks by the president. And yet he continued to slip in the kinds of phrases he uttered during the campaign, which was America's open for business at a press conference when he was asked, uh, Mr. President, do you believe that immigration is a human right? Activists say it is. What is your take? And I quote President Biden, quote, well, I think it is a human right. If your family is being persecuted, if you're being dealt away in a way with, I mean, like it was, dot, dot, dot. The right answer, Mr. President, is human right to whom to go where? What you have told the world is if you have troubles in your country, our borders are open and you can come here because that's the human right. You have a human right to immigrate to the United States. And all of those phrases put together out into the universe, out into the world, that there is an invitation to come to the United States and the borders are open. And what did that result in? Massive flood of people, more than 3 million annualized, 
coming across the border being handed a ticket of when they need to appear in court in four or six or eight months or a year, if ever, and they'll stay in this country until then. Hugh, uh, do you want to unload on the other side of the Well, I, I, I think there's a few pieces I want to pick up on this. Um, fundamentally, I don't know that our, our, our failure is entirely due with Mexico. I think it extends far, far beyond oh, that. That's there, why I said the world, a, Lou. The it, world. Yeah, it's not just the southern border, and I I think that there is a, a larger strategic conversation that that many in Washington are missing that would that would help uh, uh, deal with some of the issues that Let's we're, do we're it. facing. Let's do it. We'll come right back on that. Perfect. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Holman, Lewis Holman, my guest. Hugh Holman, then Lou. We're not giving this topic its due uh, need. We'll have to cover this over hours and hours and hours. But the the short and long of it is. Here we had a whole bunch of leftists in this country uh, screaming about how unfair it was that not every person could come across the uh, borders, whether it's Mexico or anyplace else. And uh, they all declared that they would be uh, sanctuary cities, that they would annul federal law and preclude federal law enforcement from enforcing immigration laws. That was all during the time that we had blue presidents or red presidents. Now that the border is completely open and we're being flooded, they're complaining that uh, Governor Abbott, for example, from Texas, is not giving them warning and going to find bus companies for not giving them 36 hours of notice of when they're going to bring a busload of immigrants to New York City. I'm sorry, when was the last time that Governor Abbott got notice from anybody coming across the border illegally? Millions now are coming across the southern border of these United States into Arizona, into Texas and elsewhere with no notice. And those folks who wanted to annul federal law are as responsible as anybody for putting us in this position. So, Mayor Adams, you can just. I would suggest that they gave notice to Governor Abbott that they were open for his business. I would say by proclaiming ourselves a nullification city or a sanctuary city, the federal law is irrelevant to us. Illegals are welcome here. That was the point of those resolutions. And now the fact that they're complaining about it is the fact that they are being Native American or whatever you want to call it, givers, where they have offered something and are now taking back the other. No, absolutely. The the complete political hypocrisy of they could impose on Texas and Arizona and other border states the cost of an open border until they themselves had to deal with the price. And now they don't like it. You still don't hear them talking about the fact that uh, they need the border closed at the southern part of this country. They instead talk about how unfair it is that Governor Abbott is sending them without notice immigrants. And the New York Times covering it about, oh, and, you know, now people are being dropped off in, in New Jersey. How terrible that is. It's just unfair and awful of Governor Abbott. Really? Then why don't we deal with the border problem? So we... You noted in in last segment that uh, uh, Biden was asked uh, whether immigration was a human right. And luckily, I believe we already have the answer to that question. The U.N.'s Declaration of Human Rights, uh, Section 13B, I believe, lays out the right that one has to leave one's own country and to return to one's country and leave the country that one is in. There is nothing about immigrating to any specific right, place. Right. There's no right of destination. There is no right of destination. Right. But the the larger issue, I think, about our, our immigration policy uh, vis-a-vis My, my our, point was that Joe Biden, through his commentary, uh, imposed, a, that he imposed a destination, right. the United States. So the issue then that we have is 
in dealing not only with with Mexico but all of Central and South America as a in whole. Africa. This route this goes back to a a piece of American strategic policy that was founded in the early 1800s, known as the Monroe Doctrine. Um, and this is one I think that deserves serious revisiting. Now, the population, the people that are coming into the country, are moving through Mexico, but they are not coming necessarily from Correct. Mexico. Mexico Obviously. is a junction point. Now, there are other issues that are that are a greater part of the Mexican security apparatus. Naturally, the the narco traffic contests, um, Chinese uh, fentanyl production, and moving through through. Uh, the northern border, as well as other issues. However, there are there are further problems in Central and South America. I would note uh, in El Salvador the issues with gangs over there that the president then has incarcerated uh, roughly four or five percent of his population. Uh, we see Venezuela preparing to potentially invade Guyana uh, as uh, uh, a play on. Uh, natural gas fields that were discovered there. We see Argentina coming out of a profoundly uh, uh, contentious election where it is now struggling through uh, uh, whether to fully dollarize its economy. We see Brazil still mired in a lost decade after lost decade following the Petrobras, the, the car wash scandal with Petrobras. And nowhere in in Washington, nowhere in the halls of our U.S. policymakers have I, have I heard a cogent conversation about any of this, one would think that if, if people are motivated to move to the bad locations where they are, flee through the Durian Gap, through Central America, and come here, that perhaps we ought to start thinking very seriously about that Monroe Doctrine and about our, our notion of ourselves as the stewards of the Western Hemisphere. If we did not abrogate that obligation and forget that strategic position, then maybe we wouldn't have nearly the kind of issues that we are having now. Yeah, it's also a retreat from the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, if I'm not mistaken, about our ability to intervene in these situations, Correct. if I'm not mistaken on that. Well, they don't teach that anymore. And now I'd broaden it. And it is the failed lessons that we should have learned in the last century that once the U.S. got positioned as the truly the policeman, and as you noted in the prior segment, you would want a world policeman that shares our values, that has a Republican form of government that allows people to exercise their their freedoms. And without that, across the globe, we are now facing this. So not only, Lewis and Seth, do we have the issue in Central and South America— I would posit that we still have that obligation around the world, and it's not because I'm some bleeding-heart liberal. It's because it is absolutely in America's interests to have more countries on this planet celebrating a Republican form of government that keeps them focused on improving their own situations rather than using their power and authority to advance their interests like China, like Iran, like Russia— against others, not because they are improving lives, but because they want the power and authority and the resources to build their narrow neck of the woods at the expense of others. Which brings us back then to the central challenge of nation building, which is then how do you take a people and get them to themselves engender the cultural fabric that creates institutions. We, we agree, and we've talked about this at length on the show, that, that the Federalist Papers and the, the spirit that animated the American Revolution and our, our attempts at government making were, were very, very rare, and they are not replicable. We've also talked at length on the show. They are replicable, show. but very difficult to replicate. 
it's not obvious that they are easily replicable. I will, I'll say fair enough. Um, and maybe culturally dependent. That, that also is the case. And, and possibly geographically dependent would be the other thing that we've discussed on Afghanistan, this show. Right. The ability to people a continent was a blessing that, that uh, enabled the United States to grow and develop its system of limited government in a unique fashion that I think is uh, uh, very, very unusual. And brings to- us back to the immigration problem of bringing people from cultures where they do not appreciate the philosophy that founded this country and inundated the, inundating the country with people who don't get it to begin with. And now we do not have the resources, nor are we trying to spend those resources to educate those very people. In the early days of U.S. immigration, it was done at a measured way so that we could bring these people in and introduce them to these concepts. And across the globe, we brought people in who were who were attracted here by the shining city on the hill and came to understand what it meant. We're failing that. I don't know if people <clears throat> understand the enormity of this. Do, you, do people understand the numbers? It might be higher than 20% of our population right now. Illegal. It might be. The numbers you're hearing are between 50 and 65 million right now. That are now in the country illegally. Yeah. 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 Uh, let's come back and uh, put a bow on it. We'll be right back with the Holmans. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman, my guests. We put a lot on the table. Lewis, do you want to try and put a bow on it? Absolutely. Just a little bit of cleanup, if I may, as yes. well, on our, our stats on my immigration. My stats cleaning, yeah. Uh, so uh, we, we were just double-checking over the break. We, we actually misspoke uh, on the last segment. The correct number is approximately 50 million total people in the United States were foreign-born. That is about 16 17% of the population. Uh, this Just for some context, you, you could compare this to uh, the 1890s through 1910s, which is the historic high watermark for American immigration, in which we had about one in five people uh, foreign-born. Currently, we're about one in six. Another useful, I think, point of contrast is Of, the, of which, between that 50 million, about 12 million are, are here without proper paperwork. Yes, thank you. Um, uh what one other piece of I, I think important context is looking north to Canada, uh, where currently about thirty percent of the population is foreign-born. Now Canada is in the middle of a bit of a radical transformation, moving from uh, uh, sort of the nineteen uh, nineties looking ahead. Canada elected to. Um, really alter its place in the world. And instead of being kind of the rump state minor second power it has always been, it would like to be a little more of a regional power, throw some population uh, uh, behind its relatively impressive uh, gross domestic product per capita. And in so doing, they have decided to uh, open Canada's doors to the world and import as many people as they can reasonably fit in. Um, And in, in so doing, are looking to bring the population of Canada to be about 100 million by the year 2100. That is the current official government policy. This is a fascinating thing to me because... Um, Without native births. Correct. Uh, well, their, their native-born uh, replacement births per women are, are, are sub-replacement rate. They are, I think, at about 1.4 or 1.5 births per woman at this point. So far, far below replacement for their, their native-born population. What's interesting about this is that... Um, there's many sociologists have done uh, uh, research on what happens as you add a, an ever increasing uh, uh, amount of foreign-born population to a society, and it seems that um, after above about twenty percent, you start to see destabilizing consequences. That the society starts to unmoor and lose the commonality that sort of bound it together previously, and so it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch. As I think the counterpoint to a lot of the left's open borders. 
you know, we are the world kind of nonsense that we have the counterexample unfolding to our north and we can point to as their society potentially uh, faces challenges that uh, uh, maybe that they will prove an example not worth following. It's not a country anymore, really. It's not one country, Canada. It's not one country anymore. Well, it's it's rather an extension of Heathrow Airport, I think. <laughs> Which I wouldn't wish on anyone. <laughs> on behalf of the Hallmans, Mr. Dahl, Mr. Bill, and Teresa, thank you for being with us today. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Leapson. God bless and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 